you have a Bible, Lamentations chapter number one will be there in just a minute. Um, if you're newer to the Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. So before Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Revelation. It's in between Genesis and Revelation. Uh, it's about there in my Bible. We'll be there in a minute. We got a handful of announcements. First, if you're new or visiting as a guest, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, you probably can't tell, but because I'm mildly insecure, I don't normally have a black eye. See? Anybody? Anyone? There? For those of you online, there. There it is. Yeah. It was an issue of workplace violence. Anthony finally had it. Yeah. Jorgen? Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. It was a basketball injury. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, you got to work to get into the playoffs. Playoffs are tomorrow. Prescott Panthers. Oh, it's so ridiculous. Anyways, now that my insecurity is out of the way. A uh, handful of announcements. It is the first Sunday of the month, and so what we typically do every first Sunday of the month is do a financial update. Um, if you're new, visiting as a guest, really this is part of just us being a family. Uh, it's not to make you feel guilty or awkward or full of shame or any of that. It's not a shakedown. It's simply us updating the family on where the money, what money has been given, where that's heading, and as always, open up to any questions after gathering or during the week if you have any. So our monthly budget for 2023 is $22,000 a month. And by God's grace, your generosity, we saw $21,898.10 come in. And what we like to share every time is a little bit of where that's heading. Uh, one of the things in-house is we got a new set of books is we love to give away books and resources that can help you in your journey with Jesus. And so this book is Life with Jesus by Tim Chester. And here's my recommendation with this book. It's not a typical sit down and just read it through and get some information. Uh, it's more of a resource in a workbook that is meant to be with other people. And so my suggestion, there's no strings attached, my suggestion would be get this book, find somebody else either in this church or I'd love to go through it with you and, and just continue your process of discipleship and I guarantee you that going through this with somebody else will be helpful in your journey with Jesus. So, Tim Chester, he's from the UK, discipleship course for every Christian. Those are at the connect table in the back. And then secondly, I want to introduce to you Armin and Devin Oganessian. Did I, I said it right? Yes, nailed it. You can welcome them up, even though you don't know them yet. So Armin, you guys and Devin, and they have a daughter. I do this, a daughter, because she's six, eight months old. <laughs> she's small yeah. and the cutest thing you ever did see. You guys moved here how long ago? Two months ago. Okay. So they're moving up here, starting a church called Grace of Prescott Valley. And so Armin and I met about a month ago over coffee, uh, met again, or lunch, and then coffee with Anthony, and then our elders met, and, and what the church decided to do was in their startup costs that are forthcoming, you, Union Church, are giving them 2,500 bucks to, to help them start. So, thank you. We, we don't have one of those cheesy big checks. Um, <laughs> we just, 
have the internet um, to transfer funds. So uh, what has been one of the joys of being here in this leap of faith that you two have taken? There have been a lot so far. Um, I think just something that has been a huge joy is just seeing that the Lord is already working in this area, whether it be through friendships that we've made or churches that we're partnering with or people who have even been interested in joining a Bible study with us. We started our first Bible study on Friday, which mm-hmm. two months in, we were a little nervous that that would happen, and, yep. and it did. We had, it was well attended. We have a great group of people, and that's just encouraging to see the Lord is going before us, and he's providing the things that we need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what and how can we be praying for you in this first year of getting started? You had your first Bible study. You have a block party coming up, or a open house hospitality mm-hmm. thing coming up in a couple weeks. How can we be praying for you guys? Yeah, I guess uh, we have, like, practical needs that you guys as a church plant are very aware mm-hmm. right like building people money all those like practical needs that come <laughs> along with yeah. starting a church but i think less practical that god would just simply use us to make christ's name known mm-hmm. make christ's name known specifically to people who don't yet call his name you know and reach people and share the gospel with them and yeah And so as we uh, come alongside you guys in partnership, um, one thing that has, this has been true of us the whole time, but in bringing them up, uh, there's no competition between churches, at least in my mind, in our heart. Like, there's often a posture of that. Um, And if any of you have any questions at all, talk to them and see them. If you want to be a part of another church plant in Prescott Valley, talk to them and see them. I can at least vouch, uh, Armin's been through a church planning process, Anthony and I have met with him, um, and we want to just simply see Jesus uh, known more and more throughout this area, and one of the key ways in which that happens is through churches and churches planting churches, and so we are with you guys and for you guys um, as you do that. Anything else um, we need to know, can be praying for, beyond, I think I asked all three questions I told you about, your hope for Grace of PV this year, how can we be praying? Anything else? No, I don't think so. All right. Well, church, you want to pray for them, and then we'll get into the book of Lamentations. So, Father, thank you so much for Armin, Devin, their daughter, Eden, and you bringing them up here. God, I pray that uh, first and foremost, you would knit them together as a family and protect their hearts against um, the lies and deceit of the enemy uh, that would come against them, that you would use them and their gifts as they look to start this church and that... um, more and many disciples would be made through this new effort, uh, Grace of Prescott Valley, that you, God, would um, equip them, grant them the vision they need, the patience they need in the whole process, and that ultimately, Jesus, they would trust in you uh, with everything. And so we thank you for them. We ask that you'd help them. You'd keep them as they uh, follow you in obedience in Christ. And we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Love you guys. Thank you. Give them a hand. Now, we are beginning our series through Lamentations. It's going to be an extended reading this morning. Anthony's going to teach chapter 1. We're going to read the whole thing. And I don't think we'll be doing that every single week um, as we spend the next five weeks leading up to Easter looking through this book. But for context and so that you get the tenor of the book, we're going to read all, I believe it's 22 verses. So let's give 
attention to the reading of God's word. And as Anthony often says, like, this is, and this is, I know I joke with him all the time, this is the good stuff. Um, this is God's word, so let's give our hearts and attention to it. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who is great among the nations. She who is a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads of Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have become afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her. For the multitude of her transgressions, her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughters of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, and therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. In herself, she herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see. If there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit, my children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors shall be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. 
The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. This is God's word. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we turn our heart and attention to your word, we ask that you would be pleased to minister to us and speak to us over these next few weeks as we learn not only about this book, but about lament and your heart. And so be pleased to work through uh, our friend and brother Anthony as he preaches uh, your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you, John. That was a lovely job. So I'd like to begin uh, by making a case for why we would uh, venture into Lamentations for the next five weeks. Because uh, I bet, I am, I'd imagine, and maybe bet, that some of you are wondering why would we uh, delve so deeply into the book of Lamentations. And my initial thought would be, well, why not? <laughs> if, if, uh, if Scripture is God-breathed, you know, and all and every every single word within it is God breathed. Then shouldn't the Book of Lamentations be part of our process, part of our paradigm? Uh, you know, John's been making a joke about um, getting little red hats that say "Make repentance great again." Um, I, I, I was I was thinking about that, and I was thinking if we can get a, another set of hats made up, I would like it to say, um, "Let's make obscure." books of the Bible uh, great again, <laughs> yeah. And I know that's a simple enough idea and explanation for why we would go into the book of Lamentations, because it's the Bible, it's God's word, like all of it. So let's just enjoy it and understand it and let it teach us. But I think I also have another compelling reason for why Lamentations. And if you've heard me talk about Lamentations before, then perhaps you've already heard this angle, but uh, let me offer it to you again. And I apologize if it's redundant. But the American church historically has avoided lament in its liturgy. Um, to put it another way, uh, pain, discomfort, suffering, and sadness is often unwelcome with uh, the people of God in, in the service of God. In fact, in his book, Prophetic Lament, um, Sung Chan Ra, he makes a really interesting observation around this idea. He says, in her book, Journey Through the Psalms, Denise Hopkins examines the use of lament in the major liturgical denominations in America. The study found that in the Lutheran Book of Worship, the Episcopalian Book of Common Prayer, the Catholic 
lectionary for Mass, the hymnal for the United Church of Christ, and in the United Methodist hymnal, the majority of the psalms omitted from the liturgical use were and are the laments. Now, I know some people say, well, I didn't hear my denomination there, so I'm off the hook, right? <laughs> Correct? Well, well, no. Ra actually continues, and he says, this trend is not only in the mainline traditions, but in the less liturgical as well. In Hurting with God, Glenn Pemberton notes that lament constitute for, constitutes 40% of the Psalms, but only 13% of the hymnal for the churches of Christ, 19% of the Presbyterian hymnal, and 13% of the Baptist hymnal emphasizes lament. A Christian Copyright Licensing International uh, for those of you in the biz, it's CCLI, uh, licenses local churches in the use of contemporary worship songs and tracks the songs that are most frequently sung in local churches. Now, this is what's in interesting. CCLI's list of the top 100 worship songs in August of 2012 reveals that only five of the songs would qualify as lament. Most of the songs reflect themes of praise. Now, I briefly perused um, CCLI's 2022 list, and guess what? The trend continue, continues. You can, you can go check it out yourself, and, and all God's people apparently want to sing about is happy, happy, joy, joy, thanks. Um, and again, please, please hear me. Please hear me on this. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't praise and celebrate. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that if lament constitutes 40% of the psalms, um, then shouldn't we praise and lament? Shouldn't we be uh, a both and people? Well, a friend of mine once said that. I don't want to tell you who said it because I get a big head about him, uh, John. Um, but you realize that focusing on one thing does not diminish the other thing? It's one of my frustrations about having conversations with humans. They think if you say, if you're saying something about something, then you must be antagonistic or against the other thing. Well, that's not the way words work. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's just a personal irritation of mine. But if we, if we give little or no attention to lament, we're leaving a lot of spiritual meat on the bone, so to speak. We're ignoring uh, a part of life that is so common to our human experience. Life, as we all know, and I'm sorry to break it to you, as you get older and as you live longer, life gives us far too many reasons to shed tears. And I guess what we have to think through is, why is there such an aversion to talking about tears? Why is there such an aversion to talking about sadness? I, I don't know, but the, the stiff upper lip of stoicism in Western culture probably is not helping any of us, at least in dealing with tears. Bottling it all up doesn't help. Um, one has often acknowledge that tears are like a, is like a pressure valve that needs to be released. Because if you, if you build it all up, it's just literally bad for your body. 
It's, it actually will make you sick. And so there's some things that Western culture has not, is not um, lending help to in, in that thought process. And it is that stiff upper lip of Western ideologies, just being tough and not showing those emotions. Because emotion is always equated with, with, a, with a negative idea around weakness. And that's probably, uh, we should remember the Church of Philadelphia. That was the church that Jesus commended for having little strength. They were weak, but God applauded them. So anyway, yes, you're wondering why Lamentations, and I'm making a case for it. Um, Lamentations, yes, is, it might be a terrible book. If you read chapter, if you listen to chapter one, it's not, there's nothing bright in, in that chapter, and, and I hate to break it to you, but the rest of the book is, is pretty much a bummer, too. <laughs> but I, I, I like that, that kind of stuff, so that's, that's a personal insight about me. But Lamentations, yes, it's a, as many people have noted and acknowledged, it's a terrible book. It's terrible. But I like what Leslie Allen um, says. He says, it's a terrible book for terrible times. And all of us, again, the longer you live, we inevitably encounter terrible times. And isn't it nice to have something, kind of a roadmap to show us what life can look like and how to navigate life when tough times, terrible times come? So that's a brief case. I don't know if I've sold you, but that's a brief case. How about I give you some context? Context is, right off the bat, Lamentations begins with a dirge. It's a funeral uh, language. It's a funeral procession. And the unknown author, um, and I think it's Jeremiah, but it doesn't, that, we don't need to get bogged down in that. Uh, the author says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. It starts with this word, how. How in Hebrew is ekha. It's an exclamatory statement of loss. And really, because we don't understand uh, the language, we don't have uh, language fitting for an equivalent in English, it's really better understood how in this context as a shriek or a scream. A shriek or a scream is how it begins. What we, need, or, or, what we need to know is that God's people, they're experiencing deep, deep pain. The worst pain imaginable. Uh, Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser, he observes that the, the first of the five lamentations has one monotonous theme repeated five separate times. It says, there is no one to comfort. In verse 2, 9, 16, 17, and 21. There is no one to comfort. And it begins with a funeral dirge. And it begins with a, a scream and a shriek of anguish. So what's going on? Well, it's 587 B.C. And Jerusalem literally is laying in shambles. Babylon has savaged the city. And this wasn't, you know, the first time that Israel had been under siege and had been under attack, but it was at this moment that the city was uh, going through the worst onslaught it had ever experienced. 
Even the great temple, even Solomon's great temple was reduced to rubble. So their, so their, their most esteemed and distinguished place had been devastated. And then, for the people, well, for the people, some of them were put to death, some were enslaved, and the best and the brightest of their people, the mathematicians and the basketball players, no, um, you know, the best and the brightest of their people, they were uh, taken and exiled to, to Babylon. And if they were really, really lucky, some of them escaped back to Egypt to enter into the life of an immigrant. It is a uniquely uh, painful scattering of the people of God. But it is, if you can imagine it in um, illustrated form, it's like this, just crushed and devastated and a scattered people. Jerusalem and their fall has plunged the people of God into theological crisis. If you want to read more of the back story and context, read 2 Kings 24 and 25, and there you'll read about the process of what this all looked like. But in chapter 24 of 2 Kings, verse 20, which I didn't put up there, it just says this. It says, For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. So it's so sad. It is so crushing. It's so devastating. And what we'll see as we study the book of Lamentations is how uh, this problem for the people of God caused them to probe into places in their minds and their hearts that they'd never probed into before. You see, suffering to such a degree as this has a way, <clears throat> excuse me, has a way of shaking, shaking your faith to its very core. And when you suffer in the deepest of levels, you understand a little bit of what they're going through. I just have a little parenthetical thing in my notes that says, it did to me. When I lost my son, it crushed me. I'm still working through that and probably doing that for the rest of my life. And, but anyway, that is the pain, and that's the depths of the pain that we can experience. And it does and potentially bring on a bit of a theological crisis. You see, for the people of God in, the, in this place, they could not fathom the fall of Jerusalem. For many of us, we can't fathom certain things coming into our lives. And so here was the conundrum for the people of God as they were scattered. Well, either God had lost to Babylon, there's a bigger, stronger, badder God out there who could take on Yahweh and expel and extinguish him. Or he was abandoning them, which was a possibility in their minds and their thoughts. Or perhaps he was still with them. But these were the things that they were wrestling with as they looked at the land in its total devastation. What do you think? What do you think? What does your theology, what does my theology look like when you suffer a disaster of catastrophic proportions? And I hate to be that, like, prophetic kind of 
word to you, but some of you may not even know that answer yet. It's kind of terrifying when you think about it. But that's what suffering can do. That's, that's what kind of crushing uh, suffering can do to your heart. And, I, and this is one of the reasons why I love Lamentations, because it helps us understand a people going through that process, how to engage and navigate and kind of work through that. So that's the context. Now let me tell you a little bit about the catastrophe, because uh, John read that first chapter, and we read that intentionally so you can get the scope of at least some of it. But we're not going to read every single line of every single chapter, but I, I encourage you, as you are preparing to gather each Sunday, read through Lamentations and read through every gnarly little detail in the books. But it is, in one word, a catastrophe. Uh, Kaiser, Walter Kaiser again, my homie in Lamentations, says, he summarizes the first 11 verses, uh, and in turn he gives us the scope of the suffering of this city. In section 1 he says, um, Jerusalem is personified as a woman. Her present state is sharply contrasted with what she once was. Her forsaken roads, abandoned gates, grieving priests and maidens, exiled princes and nobles all tell the part of her sad story. The reason for this wretched state of affairs already hinted at in verse 5 is her awful sin. Even her sanctuary has been decimated trading her treasures to find food during the harsh famine. Jerusalem's personification is particularly painful because she is seen as an adulterous woman. If you're familiar, the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, Israel is often portrayed as the Lord's bride, and that, that continues in the New Testament as well. But primarily, Isaiah 54 is very helpful in helping us understand this particular relationship. It says, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. There is a deep intimacy that we share as the people of God with our God, as bride to bridegroom, an actual marriage. Any of you married, you know how um, entangled a relationship can get. But Jesus, and our good Father, he intends for us to be deeply rela relationally involved with him. Now, it's not just, Christianity is not, a, is, is not a, just about um, concepts in our, our brain, but, but, but Jesus invites us to worship him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's our whole being. And so when the Holy Spirit breaks in, there's a, there's a deep relationship forged there. It's not, it's not merely an intellectual thing. It's not just knowledge. We're not, we're, not, we're not collecting data. And I have to remind myself that sometimes. We're not, we're not just robots. We're real, real humans, real boys and girls who really need real love from, from God. And so there's that deep relationship. And so if we understand this deep relationship, you see how devastating this this break is, this, this covenant break between the people of God and, and their God. Verses 8 through 10 in chapter 1, they recount the embarrassing ramifications of her adulterous uh, behavior. 
It says, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. Oh, Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. We see that she has sinned, she has been sinned against, and she has been given over to those who have abandoned her. It is such a sad state of affairs. And verse 19 is particularly painful because it says, and I, and I quote, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. Lamentations is so hardcore and challenging to us because it, it also examines the high cost of idolatry and the ramifications of breaking a covenant. And, I mean, it's crazy. We see that physically speaking when marriages kind of fall apart and, and when the adultery piece is, is there, it's so sad to see the devastation that happens just in one relationship, right? Well, now think about it on a theological level. Think about it between God and his collective bride, breaking covenant and giving their heart fully into idolatry. It is devastating, and of course the ramifications, they speak for themselves. This chapter in particular teaches us some really, I think, important things about sin, wise things that we should, you know, take into our heart and implement so we don't encounter that level of devastation. But it teaches us, one, that sin does, in fact, have a shelf life. Sin has a shelf life. And what's interesting about um, Lamentations is is that it it doesn't come with a designated expiration date like a, a gallon of milk does. Sin goes sour on you when you least expect it. You know, at least with a gallon of milk, you have a general idea of when you should stop drinking the milk, right? But sin doesn't tell you. It doesn't tell you when it's all going to go sour. Number two, the scope of sin, and I think this is important, the scope of sin is always bigger than we think. And therefore, the impact, the impact of it goes beyond what we can fathom and see. I, liken, I like to liken sin to um, a ripple. And you, you drop a pebble in, in, the, in the water, and it's incredible to watch how, just how far that ripple goes. We don't, we don't even understand how far it goes. And, and here's what happens with sin. It's, it's, we think that in sin we can manage the damage, but the Bible is very clear and apparent, and our lives lived untethered to covenant with God shows that we can't control the damage that unravels in sin. And so maybe there's a word of wisdom to, to us this morning that um, we can't actually count the cost of how much it's going to hurt in order to, you know, take a bite. Take a bite. But there's also good news in Lamentations as well, because there's also grace of knowing that no matter how bad sin gets, there's always redemptive soil available to us. 
And it comes, at least in uh, chapter 1, in the form of confession. Lamentations 1 is littered with confession. And actually, uh, Jerusalem's cry to God in, in confession, it reaches a crescendo in verse 12. It reads, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands whom I cannot withstand. And, there in verse, and then in verse 18, real quickly, uh, she says, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against, the wor- against his word. And what an important picture of what it looks like to really make confession Uh, No longer uh, pointing fingers and and laying blame at the feet of others, she is beginning to realize her um, responsibility in the matter. You see, without lament, proper lament and confession, there's no way for God's people to ever get back to her husband. A covenant can be um, healed, it can be reattached. There's grace there, always. But in order for that grace to be had and experienced and embraced, lament and confession is a part of the process. You have to face it. It's always true. It's always true for the people of God. And so, there is, so the good news that we can see, and you have to, yeah, maybe you have to squint and see, there's, there, is there really good news in this chapter? Well, if they're beginning to discover that God is all they need, then the good news is they're finding out that he's all they have, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing. And we all know the grace of that truth if we have, if we have embraced that for ourselves. Now, in closing, and this is a long close, just so you know, so don't... <laughs> yeah, setting you up, all right? all right? It's a long close, all right? So don't start b- b- closing your Bibles and, you know... Yeah, yeah. And they'll start looking at scores and whatever. I don't know. Uh, but in closing, when you think about, you know, the case of Lamentations, you think about the context and the, and the catastrophe that there is, what do you do when everything around you is broken? You're entrenched in exile and sadness. That's kind of the question that lamentation is, is asking. And that is, that is good for us, is helpful to us, because what do we do when we're broken and entrenched in a season or even a life of exile and deep sadness? And it doesn't have to come in the form of, you know, being the, the people of God in a particular place and a particular devastation. This is where it beca- can become so true for each one of us. Because losing my son... Is, is it feels like exile. And it feels like exile that will be for the rest of my life. And it, it didn't just feel that way. It is that way. It's that way. You know, as we were, had dinner at our, uh, our family's house last night, um, 
And my sister-in-law, she's so stinking sweet, she puts these little uh, 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 Kim, yeah, shout out to Kim, it's a Lil Kim. Um, she, has these real, she has these really sweet, um, what are they, like CNC machined uh, names, cursive names of all the family members, and she puts them at all our, um, at our place settings. And I, and I wonder, what, what do I gotta do to get a different place? I just wanna sit somewhere else on the table. Uh, mix it up, Kim. Um, but here, it, it, she's so sweet that every time I have to, every time we go and have this uh, a sweet family meal at their house, I have to always look and see Miles' name uh, that's, that's there, but he's, but he's no longer there. I hate that. I, I hate that. But it feels like exile. It hurts so bad, you know? And so I have to take a deep breath, steal myself, and, 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 and work through that. So it is so true to us. We all understand exile. We all understand deep sadness. We, we, we get that. And if you don't, you will. Thank God he wrote a book about crying and how we engage in all that. I'm thankful for that. Thank God the, 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 the Psalms have words of, of honesty that pour out of people crying out to him in honesty, that say, how long, O Lord, will you turn your face? How long, O Lord, will you turn your face away? How good is it to know that those words exist in the pages of Scripture? Because at some point in our lives, we, we engage on that level. We engage with God on that level. So what do we do when we're entrenched in exile and we're steeped in sadness. Well, the people of God in general, they just cry, and that's a place to start. You've got to release the valve first. You've got to just, you know, turn on the, turn, let the works go on. And who cares about stoicism and the stiff upper lip? Um, listen, this, this culture in the Mediterranean, they teach us something that we don't do really well. America doesn't do everything the best. Is that, is that okay to say that? Yeah? Is that all right? Is anybody going to get freaked out about that? You, send an email to someone else, because I don't care. Uh, but, but, this, but this, this, uh, this Mediterranean culture helps us understand the important parts of, of um, expressing our emotions. I mean, they have words that literally are shrieks and cries. We don't, ha- we don't have words like that. And so I think Jesus put them on planet Earth for a reason, and it's helpful to us. But, so, so it starts with tears, and you, let the, you open up the valve, and you just let it go. And then I really like the context that we have in the Bible, because Jeremiah, he is witnessing this as a prophet, and he prescribes the people of God something that they should implement. And it's particularly for the, the group that has been carried away to Babylon. They've, they've been forced from their homes. They're, they're, now they're working for a Nebuchadnezzar. And, and, and Jeremiah basically tells them to stay put and flourish for others. And don't be fooled by the false prophets who are going to give you their uh, empty promises. I'm going to read a big section out of Jeremiah 29 that kind of speaks on uh, and to the, the, the Babylonian captives 
But in verse 29, or chapter 21, verse 1, it begins saying, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for its welfare, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. You see, God says, flourish for others, and don't be fooled by the false teachers who are giving you empty promises. You see, the temptation for God's people who are carried away into exile, carried away by enemies who you're not real happy about being around, uh, God tells them to, um, to rem- remain, to stay put, because the temptation is to run. When, you, when you're really in the thick of it, the temptation is to run. But he says this to a particular people who are defeated by a particular people. And I think that's profound. He's telling them to seek the welfare of the people who, have, who are oppressing them. The people who hold them in derision and probably a certain degree of hatred. He's telling them to seek, their, seek the welfare of those people and to actually, actually pray for them. And is this a unique isolated, one-time thing that happens in Scripture, or is this the heart of God? Well, it is the heart of God, right? Probably his most popular sermon ever, Jesus in the Beatitudes said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Seek the welfare of those people who have caused you pain, And isn't that literally what Jesus does in the gospel? It's one of the most beautiful pictures we have of our Messiah, that as the the horde is hurling insults, he is offering words of reconciliation. He's saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Up until the very end, Jesus is pouring out love for people who hate him. And that it is at the very heart of God. And he tells us to embrace this idea. And in a polarized world that we live in, this is news that we need to hear. And in the, in the polarized fighting and in the, the mudslinging, we need to hear that God has put us on planet Earth to be peacemakers, to follow the, our great peacemaker and see what it really takes in order to make peace. And that is rooting among your neighbors and living for their flourishing. It is so um, antithetical to the way we humans think and work. We are survivalists. 
We are, we are a me first kind of people. When we plop out of bed, it's how do I look? What a, you know, I can't go out like this, you know, and, and everything else that ensues. But Jesus says to love these love people, pray for them, and, and make peace. And then I love that Jeremiah tells them, uh, the people of God, to understand what's happening in the, the scheme of things, the big scheme of things. Jeremiah tells them that the restoration of Jerusalem is going to take some time. In, order, in other words, going back home is going to take them 70 years. Um, chapter 29, verse 10 uh, tells us that. And, and, and what's, what's interesting is that in chapter 27, Jeremiah warns the people, he tells them, do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. There, there were people who were, there, there are holy men telling them, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a blip. It's, it's just going to pass and not be a problem. We'll be home any uh, time soon. The, the temple will be rebuilt. We'll have power in Jerusalem again. You know, don't worry. It's going to be fine. But a true prophet is telling them it's going to be 70 years. What's really important to remember when we are in a state of exile is that um, God is generally, I think often in my own personal experiences and observations and, and reading of Scripture, God is often working on a timetable that um, doesn't work with us. It doesn't work with me. I say, Lord, uh, like, um, like a certain, like a, a very, a, a, very, a variety of things to, to be happening in my life that aren't happening right now, God. Come on. Chop, chop. Snap to it, right? Here's the thing. There's constantly, there, there are, like, and what's interesting about the world we live in right now and the internet age, there's, you just go turn on the internet and you can find someone to tell you exactly what you want to hear. Exactly. Like, totally curated for you, what you want to receive. But, but what I, we often see with the good people of God and his prophets is they need to not hear what they want to hear. It, they need to hear what God has to say. And what God has to say is that it might take some time. It may not work. Some of those people in exile, they will live their whole life in exile, and that's it. And is God, is God good? Still. But God's way is u- uniquely not our own. But isn't that what God and Jesus demonstrates to us in the gospel. Thousands of years after Eden, it takes for the Messiah to arrive. 33 years as a man. I mean, it takes a few more decades to to get to the cross. Jesus is not in a hurry in the way we'd like him to be. And I think what we should learn from the story is that we should be suspicious of people who present and promise quick fixes. We should be suspicious of people who tell us exactly what we want to hear. I think at that point there's little thought happening in those moments. And then when you, in addition, remove Christ and his kingdom out of that conversation, you are, you are in trouble. We're in trouble. And so that's what the people in exile are battling with. Are we going to listen to the outside voices that tell us what we want to hear, or are we going to remain firm in God's plan in the aftermath of disaster? And you guys, I think this is why we need to learn lament. 
in the book of Lamentations. Because what Lamentations teaches us is that it connects us to God in the context of chaos. When the world is broken and confusing and devastating, it helps us to know how to engage with God there. And the gospel is so sweet to remind us that God is with us, and in Jesus Christ, he shows us just how much he is with us in the process. So now I'm really done. And I'll leave you with questions. A few questions to think through. And not every sermon will be this long, I promise. I pro- I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Uh, <laughs> now i got to do it. Um, one, in this, morning, this morning, as you're here, as you're here what's your particular pain? What, what's, what's your particular sadness? What's your, where do you feel in, that you're in, in exile? And while you are devastated in your own exile and sadness, what is your posture there? Are you, are you trying to keep a stiff upper lip and present strength? Well, I would invite you to just let the valve open and let those tears flow. It, it'll help. And then, if you are in an exile, I'd encourage you to embrace Jesus' way and think about how you might aid in the flourishing of others. And might I also add, stop trying to be in such a hurry. Make it all happen. I know we're movers and shakers in the American uh, way as to, like, you know, the mi- microwave, you know, throw it in the microwave and, 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 and just nuke it, right? Um, just stop being in such a hurry. And I, and I tell you what, if you, if you struggle with anger, because that's something I struggle with, um, instead of ang- anger, how about, how about we try tears? How about we try them? Because what I've read is that tears often reflect the removal of distraction. They can often mean that we're finally paying attention. And this is what is good for the people of God in Lamentations. As they weep and they cry, as they examine the devastation around them, perhaps many of them are finally paying attention. They're, they're finally present and aware. So why lament, guys? So we learn how to engage with God even when we're sad. When, when we're sad. And remember, um, this, this study might get a little more difficult and challenging. I'm not promising you anything other than that. <laughs> um, but remember this, that, that our Lord, he keeps count of every single one of our tossings. He sees us in exile. He sees us in sadness. And guess what? He takes every single one of those tears and he puts them in his bottle. That, that is what the psalmist tells us. So those tears are not wasted. And, and your Lord is catching every single one of them. He sees and catches every single one of them, and is doing something glorious. Maybe something we can't see, but he's doing something glorious with every single one of them. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your your good news and grace to us, even in the midst of a tragedy on the pages of Scripture. And And I pray that as we consider Lamentations and Um, 
the people in their, in their pain in context, but also your people today, and as we understand our pain in our particular context, may we turn to you, and, and as hard as it may be, difficult and challenging as it may be, may we turn to you and embrace your way in all of it. There is where we need so much grace, and Holy Spirit, we need your power. This is not something we can do in and of ourselves. It's not something we can do in our, in our own strength. So, Holy Spirit, please um, give us the grace to um, embody um, lament, confession, repentance, and the perseverance to, to keep um, just chasing and pursuing and following after your, your will and your way. So, God, I, I just thank you, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.